The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Well, folks, we've made it to episode number 10. Thanks to all of you out there listening, and thanks to those of you who have helped spread the word about this podcast through Facebook, Instagram, and by telling all your Mopar friends about this show. I really appreciate the support. For episode number 10 today, we have Project Car of the Week and, of course, listener stories. To close us out today, I talk about wanting a modern Challenger since 2008, and then I go through my thought process of picking the Challenger that I eventually want to bring home to my collection. Now, this may not happen today, this may not happen tomorrow, but in a short amount of time, you know, in the grand scheme of things, uh, I have made a goal for myself for the next five years to bring home a modern Challenger. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, five years is a long time. Well, I also have two other Mopar projects in the garage that take priority, but once those get on the road and I'm having fun with them, I'm going to bring home a modern Challenger. Let's just get right into it. You are listening to the best Mopar enthusiast-driven podcast on planet Earth, and I am your host, Chris Albrecht, better known as the Mopar Hunter, and this is Talking Mopars. You're listening to Talking Mopars with the Mopar Hunter, your direct connection to all things Mopar. You guys, we are in the double digits for episodes of Talking Mopars. How cool is that? This has been really fun, and it's going to continue to get even better. I've actually been reaching out to people in the Mopar community to come on the show and have a conversation with me for direct connections. And surprisingly, a lot of people have reached back, and that is great. I am so happy about that. I'm really excited to get them on the show and talk Mopars. That's what this is about. I've also actually had a lot of people reach out to me wanting to come on the show, and there's been a lot of really compelling stories that they want to tell. So I'm really excited about that. We're going to get all these folks scheduled. We're going to get them on the show. And who knows, I might have so many people lined up that we may start releasing double episodes a week of Talking Mopars, but that's not set in stone. That's not guaranteed. That's just what I anticipate with all the people I've been reaching out to and all the people that have reached out to me. So 2020 is going to be awesome, folks. Without further ado, let's get this show on the road. This week's Project Car of the Week is a Barracuda, and it's much like last week's Project Car of the Week in the fact that it is an unfinished race car. So let me just describe this car to you really quick and give you kind of a visual idea of what we're looking at here. We're looking at a fastback second-generation Barracuda. It's listed as a 1968. This thing is bright red, giant hood scoop, and although listed as a 1968, it does have a 69 front end on it because the hood kind of peaks up and so does the front end a little bit, and that's how you can tell the difference between a 1967, 68, and 69. The 69s have the pointed front end, this one is a 68. All of the marker lights and side view mirror, all of those are gone. 
So it's hard to tell other than, you know, if I was to just look at this car as it is without knowing what year it was, I would assume it's a 1969 because of the front end, but it's actually listed as a 68. So we're going to take this guy's word for it. It's tubbed. It's got a side exit exhaust. This thing is bad to the bone. It's got Lexan windows, racing seats. It's fully caged. I'm assuming that every panel on this vehicle, just based on looks alone, is all fiberglass. But let's get into the ad. Tube chassis Barracuda roller for sale. No passes since restoration. Perfect for no prep. This car is currently in turnkey form, and I have about 70000 in building this car. But all of the calls I was getting were wanting to put their own drivetrain in. So I'll pull the engine and transmission and sell ready for your drivetrain. I'll leave all electronics, including the ignition box. I'll leave the radiator. All I'll take is the motor transmission, torque converter, and flex plate. This car features base coat slash clear coat that was clear sanded. Dana rear end narrowed for 17-inch slicks. Tube chassis by Jeffers. Fiberglass front clip, fiberglass doors, fiberglass deck lid, all Lexan windows, Kirky seats, all electronics, and MSD 7AL ignition, rack and pinion steering, fabricated dash filled with gauges, NOS bottles and rack, Aluminum radiator, Cheetah 3 speed shifter, drive shaft for Mopar Big Block and 727, fuel cell, dual 12 volt batteries, electric fan, four wheel disc brakes, switch box. You simply drop in your engine, transmission, and converter, fill the bottles, and head to the track. You couldn't build this car for twice the 30,000 I want. I know I joked last week on the 68 unfinished race car project, and I said, you know, you watch Street Outlaws and you want to build one of those cars for yourself and go street racing. This car is set up for drag racing, period. You could take this thing on the street, although I don't condone that. Uh, you can take it to the track, but, I mean, this guy, it looks like no expense was spared. It looks like a lot of time and money went into building this car, and if it, if it was me and I had the funds to buy this car, I would buy it, and I would finish it, and for the engine, I would probably, I really want to see what a twin-turbo third-generation Hemi is capable of in a lightweight race car like this Barracuda. I am a big fan, like I said last week, of the Superstock Darts and Barracudas, and this thing is a whole new level. It, it is very, very clean, and it looks like it was really well built. I am not a race car fabricator, so I cannot speak on the level of quality. But just from what I'm seeing, it looks like a lot of care, time, and planning was put into the build. It is a very, very, very clean race car. So if you're looking to go to the track with something that even looks fast standing still, I think this Barracuda might be the one for you. The nice thing about buying a car like this that if we can assume that everything was done right and it was built correctly, this is the type of car that you could save a lot of money on based on, you know, the $30,000 investment and not having to spend. This guy claims to have about 70000 in building this car, so that's a $40,000 savings if what he is saying is accurate. Now, sometimes when you get these ads, you wonder how truthful they are. But looking at the guy's pictures, I see the car in a very clean shop, and it has one of those bubbles around it, so it's like a um, a cocoon, like a plastic capsule for the car to keep dust off of it, dirt, and all that stuff. So 
clearly this gentleman takes care of his cars, but if you look at the other cars in the similar, you know, inflatable capsules, you can see that he's got a wing car, he's got a Superbird, he's got, it looks like, an E-body and a newer Challenger that also look it almost looks like a drag pack Challenger, but I'm not quite sure. But you can tell that this gentleman has some money. So that most likely means that he did not cheap out on the build. So you can assume, of course you'd have to go and look at the car in person, but just based on the pictures, you can assume that it was built well and that he does in fact have more money in the car than he's asking. You can actually save money by buying this car. So those are the types of things that you need to keep in mind when looking at a race car if that's what you want to get yourself into. I think it looks great. And if I had $30,000, I definitely would buy it. And that's why it's Project Car of the Week. It's hard to find race cars like this that are so well-built, if we can assume that. There's going to be a lot of assumptions with these Project Cars because we're not there in person. We're looking at internet pictures. And you and I both know how internet pictures can be deceiving. But based, I mean, I'm also looking at, so the car, he has a picture of the car on jack stands, okay? And he must care about it because he's got rags on the jack stands. So you can tell that he's trying not to scratch the paint, so he's probably got a high-quality paint job on it that probably cost a lot of money. I'm going to go ahead and assume that this car was very well built. If you look at some of the fab work on it, like the tin work on the interior, and it, the fitment of these fiberglass panels, it all looks very well done, which is kind of hard to do with fiberglass panels. But from what I can see, it looks really good. The cage looks well built. It just looks set up very well. So if it were me, I would definitely invest in this car. And like I said, I'd put a third generation Hemi in it. Twin turbo. Let's see what this baby can do. Save some money. Buy this for 30000 Spend another 30000 Get an engine built. And, hey, we're off to the races. That's Project Car of the Week. With Project Car of the Week, I don't have any specific parameters other than I try to find cars that aren't 100% done. That's what makes them a Project Car, right? So, you know, you're going to find Project Cars on this show that are cheap and some that are very large investments. But all of them have a little project essence to them, and this is one of them. But if you're looking for a race car, you know, to go drag racing in, to go thrash in the quarter mile, this may be the car for you. So take a look at it. I posted it on the Mopar Hunter on Facebook. Take a look. It's bright red. You can't miss it. Check it out. I have two listener stories this week, and the first one was sent to me by my friend from work, Roland, also known as Roro. Hey, Roro, how's it going, buddy? <laughs> this one's for you. So this is Roro's story about how his family got hooked on Mopars. Before I tell the story, I just want to say that this is actually the story as told by Roland's dad. So here it goes. Hi, Roro. I was stationed at Wurzburg, Germany from 1968 to 1999, assigned with the 34th Military Police Detachment. My duties as the Military Police Provost Sergeant is to oversee the Military Police Desk Sergeant's operations and patrol activities. There is a non-commissioned enlisted club where Dad would go and play high-low poker during my off-duty activities and responsibilities. There are two winners to this game, the person with the highest hand and the other the lowest hand. The five players would raise each other, and this creates a huge pot. 
The only poker hand that a card player could win the pot is called the wheel. It is a straight flush, an ace, two, three, four, and a five. The person with the high hand would bet, and the person with the low hand would raise. The other card players would call or raise. This goes on and on until the other three folds or drop out. On this day, Dad held the wheel. I would bet, then he would raise. I then would raise, pot limit, and as a rule, only three raises is allowed. When I raised the third time, he did not have any money to cover my raise. He asked me if he can cover my raise with his 1965 Barracuda. I accepted and called my hand. I threw my hand down to show him what I had. He almost crapped his pants. He had a very good hand. He had a full house. If I had an ace, two, three, four, and five with different face cards, we both split the pot. This situation, I had the high hand and low hand. I drove that car all over Germany, France, and Spain. When Dad received a call that your grandmother was very ill, I put in an emergency leave to Hawaii. The car was also sent there. Later, I was assigned to Fort Lewis, Washington, and the car also went with me. I ended up giving the car to your brother, Robin. So that is Roland's dad's story. And I don't know how many stories are out there where a Mopar was won in a card game. So, Roland, your dad is a, I mean, he's winning Mopars. It doesn't get much better than that. I don't know how many people out there, if you've ever won a Mopar in some sort of gambling, in some sort of a gamble, I want to hear that story. That is very cool. Uh, Roland, I have the utmost respect for your father. I don't know if I can say the same for you. Just kidding, buddy. Thanks for sending in your story. Tell your dad I, I enjoyed it very much, and I'm sure that the listeners of this show will enjoy that very much. I mean, how many people can say that? I won a Mopar in a card game. That is really cool. So that is awesome. Be sure to tell your dad, Roland, that I thought it was cool. Thanks for sending your story. Our second listener story this week comes from Doug Boyce. Hi, Chris. Great podcast. Appreciate what you're doing for the Mopar community. I will continue spreading the word to friends about the podcast. Story of my 1969 Charger RTSE 440 4-speed. I found an ad in the newspaper classifieds 23 years ago for a 1969 Charger 440 for sale, 7200. No other info. This is when people took out ads in the weekly newspaper classifieds. There was not much internet traffic at the time in regards to cars for sale. Usually you had to find these in the newspaper or wait for the local auto trader to come out. I contacted the person and spoke with his wife. She stated her husband could drive the car to work the following day so that I could come and look at it. Unbeknownst to me, he worked at the Flint Stamping Plant in Flint, Michigan. I drove up to see the car the following day. It was parked in the Flint Stamping Plant assembly yard, somewhat rough area, and here sits the 69 Charger. After walking up to the car, it was obvious it was more than a plain Charger. There was RT badges on the grill and rear of the car. I also noticed SE badges on the sail panel. Looking inside the window, there was a large pistol grip gun handle shifter sticking out of the council. Not correct for the year, but exciting nonetheless. There was mud all over the car from the person driving it to work that day. I opened the hood and decoded the data plate. Car was a RTSE 444 speed, Dana car, made in Hamtramck. XS VIN, originally a triple green striped elite car, now triple black. Paint was decent, no rust or rot whatsoever. I contacted the seller, went to his house the following day, and purchased the car on the spot. Was also given extra seats, extra side glass, and miscellaneous parts that my wife wondered why we needed. LOL. Took the car to a local used car lot the following week to get appraised. 
This used car dealer used to sell old muscle cars. He walked around the car and noticed a few things about it that looked familiar. He went into his office and came out with a picture which was about five years old at the time of my car that I just purchased. He states that he brought the car back from California to Michigan and was the person who sold it to the gentleman that I bought it from. He actually gave me that older picture of the car. Since that time, I have replaced the motor, transmission, and the usual parts and pieces for the car. Currently has a 496 muscle motor stroker with solid cam, Edelbrock aluminum heads, 10.5 to 1 compression, pump gas. I have a picture of my son, who was 2 years old at the time, poking his head out the window. He is now 26 and he drives the car regularly and also helps me work on the car. I enclosed a picture of my son when he was little and a video of him now driving it 24 years later. I'm in the 70 Challenger as we went for a cruise. Thank you for your podcast. Great info you provide and will continue to listen. Doug. Hey, Doug. Thanks for sending in your story. What a deal. $7,200 for an original 69 RTSE 444 speed car. That is cool. Um, although it is no longer the original triple green, which I'm actually a fan of that color combination. Um, it is very cool that it is now triple black. Uh, I'm not mad at black. I think black is a great color, especially for a charger. And it's good that you still have the original fender tag. That's always good for documentation purposes. And it's awesome that your son has been with the car since he was young. That is very cool too. I always say that it's great getting kids involved when they're young with these cars because it's something that they will take with them for the rest of their lives. And it's cool that you let them drive it. It sounds like it's a little bit of a monster with a 496 big block stroker. That's cool. And the nice thing about a car that was already modified when you got it or that was not necessarily 100% original stock, you know what I mean? I sometimes like those cars because it allows you to make it your own and to modify it to be the car you want it to be and not necessarily what the factory wanted it to be. So it's not always a bad thing when cars are built off of the fender tag as far as you know, when it's a triple green car and somebody goes, you know what, I hate that color combination. I'm going to do triple black. So that's cool. I don't have a problem with that. You know what I mean? Especially if your whole purpose is to enjoy the car and you're not looking at it as a long-term investment for originality because that's out the window, <laughs> you know? So with a car like this, you can do what you want to it because it's special to you and you're not concerned about the end value. That's always a cool thing. So, you know, very cool charger. I like the pictures and I like the video a lot. Really fun. And it's good to see that your kid is driving the car a lot and he's enjoying it. You know, there's a lot of kids these days that don't care about cars at all. They'd rather take an Uber or a Lyft, you know, instead of actually driving themselves. So it's good to see the enthusiasm from the younger generations. I'm only 35 or going on 35, I should say. So when I meet other young people that are into these cars, you know, it really piques my interest because it ensures that the hobby will stick around and that it won't fade away. So as long as young people, you know, those 40 and under, keep these muscle cars alive and keep pulling them out of barns, out of fields, out of backyards, you know, and we keep saving these cars, then 
the hobby will continue for years to come. And I don't think that it will ever stop. I think there's enough of us around now that are still younger that really care about these cars and really want to see them rebuilt and, you know, saved. So that's always cool. Thanks again, Doug, for sending in your story. Thanks again to Roland for sending in his story. And that does it for listener stories this week. Keep sending them in. If you have a great listener story, whether it's short or long, I get a lot of people apologizing for long stories. That's okay. I don't mind. I just may not be able to share more than one on an episode, but that's cool. No big deal. I'm actually thinking about having another episode of mostly listener stories because I've been having so many sent to me that they are piling up fast. And I don't want people waiting too long before they get to hear their story because that's it's always fun to hear your story on a podcast or a radio show or even on TV. It's That kind of stuff is always cool. So I want to make sure that you all are encouraged to keep sending them in. You know, it's not going to be a year before you hear your story. I'm going to get to them sooner than that. So thanks to all of you who have sent in stories in the past. And thanks to all of you who are thinking about sending in your story. Go ahead and do it because we will get to it. And the whole world of Mopar will get to hear your story. So send them in chris at talkingmopars.com. The year was 2008, and rumors had been circulating about a new Challenger since the concept car was officially revealed in 2006. Being a fan of Mopars my whole life, and being genuinely disappointed that the return of the Charger brought us Mopar enthusiasts a four-door sedan, the news of a new Challenger returning to Dodge's lineup was game-changing for me. Now, I do want to say that I do like the Charger, but I really hoped for a two-door muscle car from Dodge. So when the Charger came back as a four-door, it was cool having a Charger, but there was just something about the four-door that it bummed me out that it wasn't a two-door. You know, when I think of Dodge Charger, I think of the Coke bottle-shaped, iconic shape of a Charger, and adding two more doors to that design really threw me off, but that's okay. Thankfully, Dodge was listening to the enthusiasts, and they greenlit a new Challenger. When I finally saw this car, um, it was still a concept, and it was on the cover of a couple different car magazines, I knew that someday I would have to get my hands on one. The modernized Challenger was absolute perfection to me. And while technically very different from its legendary predecessor, there was no denying that this car was true to the design of the original but updated for the modern era. It absolutely carried the essence of the 70 Challenger from which it was inspired. And I've wanted a modern Challenger ever since, but I always find myself buying more practical vehicles for daily driving as of late. In the last couple years, I have finally decided that unless I run across an unbelievable deal on a classic Mopar, on another one, because I already have two, my next car you know, technically, I just said I have two classic Mopars, but technically, if you count all the 80s Mopars that my dad and I have, it's much more than that. But we'll just go for two for now. So unless I come across a crazy deal on another classic Mopar, my next car is definitely going to be a newer Challenger. The only question I ask myself is, which one do I want? 
So there's plenty of options from 2008 all the way to now in 2020. There is all sorts of different package cars that you can get from Dodge. You can get SEs, SXTs, SRT8s, SRTs, Hellcats, Hellcat Red Eyes, Scat Packs, Demons, you know, RTs. There's just so many different challengers to choose from. And I want to make sure that the one that I buy is one that I want to keep for a long time. You know, I don't want to get something and then think to myself, oh, I could have gotten this one if I had just waited. So what I have done is I've told myself that in five years, I'm 35 now, when I turn 40, I'm going to buy myself a birthday present. And that birthday present is going to be a modern challenger. Now, ideally, it would be the 840 horsepower demon. But, I mean, I can't possibly ignore the fact that it is the fastest production car on earth. But with prices in the six-figure range, it is realistically out of my reach. It's the baddest modern Dodge to ever roll off the assembly line, and I can't pretend that I wouldn't absolutely love to own one, but it's just too rich for my blood. That's all there is to it, at least now. Unless I run across uh, seeds for money trees, then I guess I'll have to settle for something a little bit lesser than a demon, and that's okay. My runner-up to the demon is the new Hellcat Red Eye. While not quite as fast as the demon, it is still very cool in its own right, and, and that's even if it only has 797 horsepower comparatively to the Demon's 840. But I love the hood scoops on the Hellcat Red Eyes. They really remind me of a modern version of the old twin hood scoops found on classic Mopar muscle cars. So like the, the Coronets and the Super Bs and, you know, the Dart Swingers and the original Demons, you know, those twin hood scoops. I think that the Hellcat Red Eye really is the, the hood on the Hellcat Red Eye is the perfect modern iteration of those classic twin hood scoops. So I think that's very cool. Just to sidetrack for a second, how about them wide bodies offered on the new Challengers and Chargers? Wow. I know that not everyone is a fan, but I think they are pretty rad. And when I saw the Demon come out and it had that wide body on it, I was like, oh. You know, because a few years ago, well, quite a few years ago now, there's a company called Liberty Walk, and they created, I believe they were the first wide body kit for the Challengers. Now, in my opinion, it looked a little gaudy. Now, I guess it depends on the color and the setup of the car, but I was like, that's ah, just a little bit too much for me. But when I saw the wide body on the Demon, I was like, okay, so it's more like flared fenders, and it just made a chunky car even chunkier. So I really liked the new factory wide body cars. So when Dodge announced that the scat packs were going to get them and you could get them on Hellcats and even the new Chargers, you can get wide bodies. I was I was really excited. So I know it's not everybody's favorite look, but I like wide bodies. I can't help it. They seem to just add the right amount of chunkiness to a car that already has a massive presence on the road, and I like having wide bodies as an option. But back to the Hellcat Red Eye. Unfortunately, with an MSRP of basically, you know, 70 grand, 
it also is out of reach for me financially. That brings me to the Hellcat. With 707 horsepower, it's got more power than I would ever need in a daily driver, but could I justify the added costs of owning a Hellcat Challenger, which is a Challenger in the upper echelon of Challengers? The added cost for me would be insurance, fuel, and the cost of new tires. I mention those added costs because, let's face it, with a Hellcat or any Challenger in that upper echelon of force-fed Challengers, the high probability of me amassing a collection of speeding tickets, always having my right foot to the wood, and the constant tire shredding that would most likely occur, I can't deny that they're most likely guaranteed expenses. That's not to say that those costs wouldn't occur in any Challenger less than a Hellcat, but the addition of a supercharger makes the odds much greater. So with those theoretical costs aside, the Hellcat still remains out of my price range, unless I look at like used ones. But And I'm open to that. But when Hellcats are purchased used, I'd imagine that a majority of them have most likely already had the piss beaten out of them. And I'd really want to be the first to break in my Hellcat Challenger. It's like, uh, you know, I don't want a sandwich that somebody has already touched <laughs> or, you know, taken a bite out of. You know, I want my own. But if I can't have a supercharged 6.2 liter Hemi under the hood because of financial reasons, I really have to consider what the purpose of a new Challenger would actually be for me. Why do I even want one? Well, because I think they look awesome and I've wanted one since they came out back in 2008 and I still don't have one. So how much I want to spend is another question I have to ask myself. And ideally, anything less than a Hellcat price. But, you know, you can get a Hellcat used, you know, it's got, they have some miles on them, but you can get them for around, you know, 40 to mid 40s. I would like to spend less than that. You know, unless I'm buying a brand new car, then that's understandable. But I doubt I'll even be able to afford that in five years, mostly because you know as well as I do, as soon as you buy a brand new car, as soon as you drive it off the lot, bom, 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 you lose some value in it. You know, it's the depreciation off the lot that would kill me. But how much I can actually afford is another story. And right now, well, I'm not buying a Challenger right now or anytime soon, really. So these are just things that I'm considering when thinking about my eventual purchase. And the amount of time between now and five years from now, that amount of time really opens the door to more possibilities, but I'm still debating on what Challenger I would want to buy. There are a few options under the Hellcat that would most likely be more practical for my situation, and that hurts me to say, because you shouldn't have to think about practicality when buying a muscle car, but it's something that I need to consider. So, being open-minded, I should consider the lowest Challenger in the hierarchy of Challengers, the V6 model. Now, I actually had the opportunity to spend a little over a week in the new Challenger SXT when my current daily driver, a 2012 Ram 1500, was in the body shop getting repaired after I was rear-ended. While definitely not the fastest car I've ever driven, the SXT 
was definitely fun to drive. I don't feel like they are underpowered with the V6 at all, but one thought kept coming across my mind. Fun. The Challenger would probably be a lot funner with more oomph. The big selling point for me on a V6-powered Challenger is that they're extremely affordable. Even a brand new V6 model is well within my ideal price range, but there's just one problem. I know that I will regret not getting a Challenger with a Hemi. That's not to say that a V6 Challenger isn't the right car for you. You may not need or want more power than the V6 provides. I just know that for me personally, the V6 wouldn't suffice in the long run. I know that I would eventually think to myself, God, I should have just got a Hemi. So if I buy a newer Challenger, I plan on keeping it forever. Therefore, I need to make sure that when I buy one, it's the right one. It's the perfect one. Still a lot to consider. Now, there's also the Challenger GT, which was introduced in 2017, and it's the world's first all-wheel drive two-door muscle car. A very cool car, and a very good choice for someone concerned about traction in less than ideal road conditions due to weather. So, I would almost vote for the Challenger GT to be the best option out of all the Challengers, because you can essentially enjoy it year-round. But there is one problem, again, the lack of a V8 option. Still, the Challenger GT may be perfect for you, but it's not quite what I'm looking for. I hope Dodge hears the enthusiast community's request for an all-wheel drive V8-powered Challenger and Charger, or, you know, even a new Cuda that's all-wheel drive with you know, the turbo inline six that's rumored to be coming out and replacing the 5.7 Hemi, but I digress. The next Challenger I would seriously consider would have to be the RT with the 5.7 Hemi. The Challenger RT is a car that fits the bill for me. There's plenty of options to choose from. Of course, it's got the Hemi, basically everything I want in a modern Challenger. But again, there is a problem. This time, it's not that it's not a V8. This time, it's because I know that there's a bigger V8. I know that a 392-powered Challenger, that's the 6.4-liter Hemi, isn't too far off price-wise from a 5.7 Hemi-equipped one. And I've driven a Challenger with the 6.4-392 Hemi, and it was more than enough power and tons of fun. So... I think that would justify me not being able to get the supercharged Hellcat or above if I just had the maximum amount of power offered by Dodge in a normally aspirated configuration. I know deep down that I wouldn't regret buying a 392 Challenger, so that's the one. I mean, I could go back to an early SRT8 Challenger that has a 6.1 Hemi and save a few bucks, but again, knowing that a 392 is available, and far more obtainable for me than a Hellcat or, you know, any of those upper echelon challengers, why not get the best of what I am willing to spend? And I think I would get that in a 6.4 Hemi Power Challenger. So that's it. My mind is set. But it's not quite that simple. See, there are still some questions I need to ask myself. Do I need to go a few years back and pay less for a used 392 Challenger that maybe has the older body style and 
you know, the older ones have like 15 less horsepower? Or do I fork out the extra bucks and get the latest model? You know, thinking about all these different options, not only with the entire field of choices from 2008 until today in 2020, but also, you know, the different options I could get and packages. But I think I have my mind made up. I'm pretty sure that the Challenger that checks all of my boxes, it's got to be the 2019 plus Challenger RT Scat Pack Widebody. It has all the power I need, and it's got all the looks that I want. My second choice would have to be the Scat Pack 1320. It's called the 1320 because that's how many feet are in the quarter mile, and that's what the 1320 was built for. These 1320s are built specifically for the enthusiast who frequents the drag strip. Now, I don't frequent the drag strip, but if I had a 1320, it might give me more reason to make the trek over to the track. The 1320 is a demon short of a demon. No supercharger, no wide body, but a bunch of the drag-specific tech that the demon has, which is awesome. But my Dart is the car that I really want to be my track car, the car that I take to the drag strip. And if I have two drag strip cars, I don't want to have to deal with those life choices. <laughs> you know, I want to have a dedicated car that that's the car I take to the track. And that's my goal for my dart. So I don't think that the 1320 is the right car for me. But that being said, it is definitely second place on my roster for a new Challenger that I want to get. I just want a Challenger to help liven up my commute to and from work and something fun to cruise. And I really do think that the Challenger RT Scat Pack wide body is the Challenger most capable of doing all those things. And hey, by the time I turn 40, I'm sure I can find a well-cared-for pre-owned one because it's going to be 2025 by the time I actually buy one. And for a while... I considered whether or not I really even wanted a wide body, but after seeing one out in the wild, I now know that I have to get one of those. Would I be okay with a regular scat pack that wasn't a wide body? Of course, but if I was at a light and a chunky wide body rolled up on me, I'd probably get a little jelly. So to ensure that I never have those feelings, I better just get everything I want in the Challenger that I end up buying. Now, what happens when a supercharged Challenger rolls up on me like any of the Hellcats or a Demon? My only hope is that I can pull whole shot and take the next turn <laughs> and get off that street. That's my only hope. But let's be honest. If you really want a forced induction-powered Challenger, you can always supercharge a scat pack. I drove a 392 and I can absolutely tell you that even though the supercharged Hemis are absolutely ferocious, I don't actually need one. That all said, if I can score a wide body Hellcat in five years for a good deal, then we getting boosted, baby. But that's all there is to it. So there you go. I want a wide body 392 scat pack. And as far as colors go, I'm partial to green. I like F8 green. I, I like the sublime green. I think that's cool. And, you know, I guess we'll see in five years. 
you know, unless some crazy things happen before then, it's going to be about five years before I get my scat pack. And hopefully by then the wide bodies will have come down in price and I can find a clean used one that hasn't been beat too hard. We'll see in five years. Here's something I want to put out there into the Mopar world. If you own a modern Mopar, but were not necessarily a Mopar enthusiast before you owned one, I want to hear about your experience and what about Mopars pulled you in. And now that you're in, how has your experience been? So if you have any modern Mopar stories, send them to me, chris at talkingmopars.com. Before we shut this podcast down and highly anticipate episode number 11, the third episode of 2020, I want to say that I've read a lot of posts on social media criticizing the modern Challenger and saying that it's just not as cool as the original, or it's not really a Mopar, yada yada yada. I would never feel comfortable calling myself a Mopar enthusiast if I shared those same feelings. The original Charger, the original Challenger is awesome, and the new one, although cool, can never take away that cool nostalgia of a 1970. But that doesn't make the old one any less awesome or the new one any more awesome. They simply share a bloodline, and even in their many differences, you can still see their undeniable similarities. I am happy that Dodge brought the Challenger back in 2008, so I will not complain about it. And since it's returned, I've noticed that the modern Mopars have grabbed the attention of the younger generations now which will only fuel the Mopar enthusiast community and encourage its growth. The only thing I would criticize about modern Mopars, as far as Chargers and Challengers, and any modern Mopars for that matter, is the attendance of the car shows is something that bothers me a little bit. Now, I think good turnouts at car shows are great, but I would be lying if I said that it doesn't bother me just a little bit when people show their stock, unmodified, modern Mopars at a car show. My philosophy has always been, if I can go to a dealership and see your exact car where there's no difference and I can't, I can't even tell them apart, in my opinion, you may not be ready to register your car as a contestant in a car show. I would rather see an unfinished project car beater rot box towed to the show on a trailer than a stock anything, you know, as far as modern Mopars go. If I can go to a dealership and buy that car, I don't want to see that at the show because I can go to a dealership to see that, you know, especially if it's stock. Are they cool? Sure. But are they show-worthy material? You know, that's super debatable. But I know it sounds like I'm throwing a ton of shade at modern Mopars, but this is just my opinion, and it's not that I'm throwing shade. Because I would never purposefully try to make anyone ever feel bad about their car. It's just not something I would do. But hey, if that's you, you do you. If you take a stock Mopar to a car show, a stock newer Mopar to a car show, you know, that's, that's you. You know, you do you. But the most important thing is that you are a Mopar enthusiast, which I respect. And let's be honest, it's pretty hard to keep any Mopar 100% stock so yours probably won't stay stock for long. You know, I can't hold it against you too much, but I do encourage you to start modifying that thing and really kick your Mopar enthusiasm into high gear.
That's it, folks. Episode number 10 is in the books. For more information about the show, please go to TalkingMopars.com. That's also the best place to send people if you are helping me in spreading the word about the show. Find me on Facebook at The Mopar Hunter and at Talking Mopars, and also find me on Instagram at the.mopar.hunter and at Talking Mopars. I am your host, Chris Albrecht, and that was Talking Mopars. Thank you for listening to Talking Mopars, your direct connection to all things Mopar. Until next time, remember, no Mopar left behind.